Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. I'm joined today on the show by my co-host, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. And our very special guest on the show today, Gordon Smith, the president of Ambrose University and Seminary in Calgary, Alberta, where he also serves as professor of systematic and spiritual theology. He's an ordained minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance and a teaching fellow at Regent College, Vancouver. His latest book from IVP Intervarsity America is Your Calling Here and Now, Making Sense of Vocation. And I quote, Gordon Smith invites us to reflect on our vocation and step into God's call in the present moment. When discerning our vocation feels overwhelming, Smith offers a simple question as a way forward. At this time and place, who am I meant to be and what am I called to do? Gordon and Ian, hi, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you back with us. I think the hi. last time... Hi, Ian. Yeah, the last time you spoke with us, Gordon, it was about the Holy Spirit. So it's great to have you back talking about vocation. Now, uh, why is vocation always particular? Why is vocation always particular? Or specific, yes. Yes. I think, yes, I do use the language of particular. I think people find find it all a bit overwhelming when sometimes we ask the question, what are you called to do? And... Uh, and we are often in circumstances in which we're expected to be heroes for Jesus and do a thousand and one things. And the more things you do, the more impressed we are for all the things that we're accomplishing for the kingdom of God. And I want to say, take the pressure off and just be specific at this time and in this place. What am I being called to say and do? And I think what you'll find is that this is this is reflected in the biblical narrative, whether it's... Um, uh, key Old Testament leaders, or whether it's the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, just a sense of in this time and in this place, this is what we're called to do. And I mean, I don't want to say the words, it's not complicated. As often as not, it can be quite complicated, but at least this helps simplify it. Okay, then how can we discern who and what we are called to be and do? How can we discern this? Well, I, I find it fruitful to ask certain questions. So when someone says to you, um, I can help you do this, I really doubt that they can. What I want to do with a publication like this is really empower the reader to, to be able to make this kind of determination for themselves, rather than expect somebody else to parent them or to do it for them. So um, I often th use the image of what does it mean to come alongside someone else as a friend, as a colleague, long walk on the beach, whatever it happens to be, as this person's trying to discern what it is that they're being called. First of all, I think we need to be able to respond to the following question, what on earth is God doing? Because our work is a participation in the work of God. And if we can't answer that first question, inevitably, we're going to be lost or overly constrained. And I find most people have an overly constrained understanding of what God is up to, Either it's always religious work or for the Asian Canadian or Asian American community, it's you are being called into medicine, law or engineering. And my son, those are your options. And and uh, what I want to do is broaden and say, look at all the ways in which God is active in the redemptive purposes of the, of the reign of God, all the ways in which potentially we could be involved. So first, what is God doing? Secondly, who are you? 
my read, and this is entirely you know, subjective and anecdotal, but that the greatest obstacle to vocational discernment is the lack of self-knowledge. We live with illusions about who we are, and we're not prepared to be honest or truth-telling with respect to ourselves. And then thirdly, I think often we live with illusions about the circumstances we're in. And the point I want to make here is that God calls us to this time and this place, and therefore don't live in wishful thinking, wishing our circumstances were different, because they're not. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like when I became the president of this university, it was heavily in debt. And for my first four months, I kept saying to my wife, I wish we weren't in debt. And she said, yes, of course you wish you weren't, but you are. Therefore, you are being called to lead an institution that's in debt. There it is. Uh, you can wish it otherwise, but God has called you in this time and in this place. And I think this is so important when people have had setbacks in their lives that they wish had not happened. And all of us experience setbacks. Uh, and oftentimes these are demoralizing and and we need friends to say, okay, yeah, you got fired, you got terminated, you lost your job, but it's not the end of the universe. So now we turn, we pivot to whatever language you want to use, and just ask now, given what is, not what we wish was the case, but what is actually the case. Because wishful thinking is actually a way of living a lie. So we live the lie about who we are, and we live the lie about our circumstances. Um, or, you know, it's nostalgia or something like that. So, though, I mean, there's more questions, perhaps, but those are the three big ones in my mind. Yes, I was going to ask you how, <laughs> how God can use setbacks. We learn from them, but also, I mean, I often use the, the spectacular benediction midway through the book of Ephesians. I laugh at that benediction because I think Paul just couldn't restrain himself rather than waiting till the end of the book when you're supposed to give the benediction. About halfway through, he just can't restrain himself. It says, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, that is, we consistently underestimate the grace of God. I think we've already uh, talked about this, or we started talking about this, but why is vocation never discerned in a vacuum? Because God does not act in vacuums. Uh, God's actions are always particular to time and place. So his call to art, to participation in his work, will be into time and place. And I, I try to, I, I'm saying that because I'm frankly a little weary of of books that have you fill out the first part of the book, answer all the following questions. Now turn to the back and, oh, you're an engineer. If you answered all the questions that way, as though we, we discern without reference to the actual uh, life circumstances that we're in. I mean, I've got grandchildren and inevitably they know I've published a book on vocation and so they wanna talk about it. And I don't, I don't wanna talk about them in the abstract. I wanna talk about them in the life, in the context of their actual life circumstances. Yes, so you're getting lots of phone calls from your grandchildren asking you specific questions about what what should they do. <laughs> uh, not too many. They're a little bit they're a little anxious about their grandfather's overreach. But um, <laughs> I am struck by this. I have six grandchildren. Every last one of them, when I ask them what they want to do with their lives, they want to make a difference for God, and they want to make a difference in the lives of other people. And that is terrific. It's just a matter of, you're not going to fix everything, but where can you make a contribution? Um, I love using the metaphor of, the, of a sports field. We're not just in the stands observing the game. 
we're actually on the playing field. We're not the star, we're not the captain, but we are actually contributing to, now to switch the metaphor, to the drama of God's redemptive purposes. And now we're asking the Spirit, where am I being called to act in the drama of God's redemptive work? Yes, Ian, I'm going to bring you in here if you're still with us. Questions for Gordon? Thoughts about vocation? Yeah, I, my kind of question is, is why have we lost that kind of sense of vocation? Yeah, it, there's been periods in Christian history where that's been very important. Why kind of why have we kind of collapsed everything down to be, particularly within the church, that the only important vocation is the important work, you know, kind of the high-paying work or the, the ministry work, um, where in the past, you know, ev- everyone saw that vocation was really important. Yeah, great question. Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, it is interesting to to realize that that within, so if, for example, in this book, I do I have a chapter on manual work, on working with our hands. What intrigued me doing that, uh, the opening of that chapter, was talking to people of Asian descent, how influenced they've been by Confucianism, and this is an ancient ideology, but it still runs deep in our psyches. And for those of us that have been more influenced by the West, the ambivalence of Greek philosophers about any kind of manual work, again, I think it runs deep within our, within our psyches. And every so often, the church, I think, rises above that and articulates a wholesome understanding of vocation, work, and career. But it's amazing to me how, how frequently we lose touch with that um, and whatever it is that occasions it. So... I mean, I grew up within uh, the evangelical Reformed tradition. That is that unequivocally coming out of the Reformation affirmed the sanctity of all vocations uh, and actually dismissed the Roman Catholic notion that religious work is more sacred. How did we lose track of that, that article that was so central to the Reformation? How did my father, for whom the only legitimate calling was not just the calling to be a pastor, if you love Jesus, you were going to be a missionary. Uh, that's what, and if you love Jesus a little less, then you'd be a pastor. And if you love Jesus a little less, you'd be a business person and raise enough money to support those that are doing, as he put it, the Lord's work. Where did this come from, given that we are heirs to the Protestant Reformation? Yes, I think there's a question about how the reformers like Calvin and Luther opened up our vision of a life and work. Well, they very definitely did. And it's interesting to look at those religious communities that ran with this most strongly. My observation, I'm not a, I'm not, this is not an area of expertise, but it seems to me that Dutch reformed, uh, the Dutch reformed Protestant theological and spiritual tradition had a strong affirmation of the variety of ways in which God's people were called into business, into the arts, into education. And I think it shows in, in, uh, in Dutch culture. Why is connectedness so important when thinking about our vocation? You write a lot about connectedness in the book or community. Yes, and perhaps I do this kind of in an axiomatic way and don't support it. But part of the case I want to make is that you cannot navigate these complex questions alone. I would not be here were it not for two or three closer than brother friends who have my back, who are who who love me but they're not overly impressed. They're not gonna flatter me. Uh, They're not my cheerleaders. They're gonna call me to account. But uh, I think back to every critical transition in my life, I I was overwhelmed by it. 
what was it time for me to leave when I left Regent College? I couldn't have done it without the counsel, encouragement, the forthrightness of three colleagues, not at Regent, outside, who were who were closer to me than brothers. My read is that the even our own personal issues, we need to make those decisions for ourselves. We don't ask anybody else to do it for us, but we need the company of friends to, to, uh, to uh, so I, I ache for, I'm a university president, but I ache for young people who strike me as really trying to navigate the big questions of life alone. The lack of, the lack of rich camaraderie uh, that I think I experienced as an undergraduate and as a seminary student concerns me today. And I, I think in part, social media has not strengthened that those bonds that social media has actually created a sense of disconnect rather than a sense of connection how can we best appreciate people's giftedness do you think wow well <laughs> i'm trying to think here you should see my refrigerator door it's plastered with the artwork of my grandkids uh so that yeah they know when they walk in our house that we think they're awesome you you need to have cheerleaders along the way who affirm when you do something well and call you to excellence, uh, call you to excel. And maybe it's your parents or your grandparents or your uncles and your aunts, but uh, people who are within your village who uh, recognize and affirm and celebrate the work that you do. I think, yeah, that's what I would say. And I'm, I'm 68. I had to go before a firing squad, not literally, hyperbolically or metaphorically last week. I got an email today from somebody who was in that room. Uh, this was on a Zoom call. And he just wrote to say, wow, you did that so well. I came out of it feeling like, no, I did not. This was, how does a university like ours respond to the LGBTQ plus question and to those students that show up at our door? And this, this pastor was just so encouraged by what I said. And I realized, wow, I needed that. So we all need it. We, we all need the affirmation. We all need the well done thou good and faithful servant, and we need it from God, but it's also communi often communicated to us through fellow uh, pilgrims on the road. Mm. Is life full of multiple callings, do you think, at various times? Well, in an earlier publication, I did not speak this way, but in this publication, I do. I think every last one of us has multiple callings. My hero in this regard is Jacques Ellul, who was a lawyer, a professor, a city council member, a theologian, I mean, all of the above. Uh, I was very impressed a number of years ago hearing an interview with Rowan Williams, the Anglican Archbishop, who talked about the fact that I am this and I am this. I am both. And there's not an inherent tension between them. I am both of these. Um, and I don't have to kind of choose one over the other. So yes, I have multiple callings. I'm a university president. I'm a professor, writer, teacher, lecturer. I'm a grandfather, and I'm an assistant gardener. And you can probably guess who the lead gardener is. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so I, you know, she tells me, this is what I need you to do. But these are all uh, navigating life is navigating, making sense of uh, these various obligations and callings we have. And I think having clarity about what comes first, what comes second, is hugely important in terms of how we navigate that well. Sometimes we probably feel a really just almost a, not a dynamic tension between them. That is, Joella, my wife and I have a friend. She's an artist. 
She's a single mother. She has to raise those two girls. She has to have a day job where she makes enough money to feed and care for those girls. But she's an artist. And we feel for her because when does she get a chance to move into her little studio on the corner of her living room to do what she loves to do? And she puts her girls to bed at night, and that's when she gets her chance. And there's no kind of avoiding. She has to try to be both. She has to be a mother to those girls, even though she's called to be an artist. Mm. What's your advice to someone in that situation? Someone who feels they have a, or apparently has a gifting in that area, but literally has to work a day job. Oh, my. Well, first of all, don't let the dream die, mm. for goodness sakes. Find little windows. I have, there are, there are people I urge, uh, I write for an hour a day, every day from seven to eight o'clock, uh, I write. I use the example of Anthony Trollope, who wrote for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes a day. So first of all, don't lose the dream and use whatever opportunities are given to you. And then secondly, uh, wait and see what may transpire, that sometimes I think we need patience. I make reference in the book to, a, I make reference in my book to another book entitled Old while at art school. And it's a professor at a university in Pennsylvania where she all along believed she was called to be an artist, but actually didn't go to art school until her 60s and uh, decided I'm not going to let this dream go. So here I go. Um, and it's really just a delightful read um, that sometimes God, you might say, plants a seed. And we just need to, to we're not demand that this find fulfillment. I mean, we have examples in scripture too. I mean, Moses didn't become the leader of the people of Israel until he was 80, for goodness sakes. And King David became the king of the people of Israel, well, uh, probably 10 years after he felt that call. So I just think sometimes we just need to let it grow, let the seed grow, and be patient to let God do God's work in God's time. Yes, you write um, very helpfully, I think, about concentric circles. So you picture your calling, you talk about the way you structure your life so you can fulfill your various degrees of call. But how important is it to think in terms of concentric circles when you're thinking about vocation? Well, just accept on the one hand, you cannot do everything. Uh, most of us on this call or listening in are not going to be able to do everything we want to do. And that's part of accepting our human condition. I am not going to likely resolve global warming and peace in Ukraine and the state of the church in Canada by this weekend. So just get over the sense of being a hero and just to say, okay, with this one precious life, um, this is Mary Oliver that's been given to me, what, how can I be a steward of this life, of what I potentially can contribute? So you can't do everything. And then secondly, um, I do like Stephen, I'm not a big fan of Stephen Covey, but I do like his language of first things first. And that reflects, in a sense, a commitment to what is most important, what, what does it behoove you that needs to be done? So I shouldn't accept an invitation to serve as this university's president unless I'm prepared to do what it takes to be that president. You know, it's just, it's not complicated. This is what it takes. And so don't take on the job if you're not willing to do it. And I want to say the same thing to my son, who's a pastor. You're scheduled to preach at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. It's uh, like not complicated. And of course, he says, yeah, Dad, I know. But still, this is what needs to be done. Um, and I think sometimes we overplay Jesus' words to Martha about Mary, the one thing needful. Sometimes I think it's an inaccurate read of that exchange. But it is helpful to think, what is needful of me today? 
for, for my day job, for uh, the well-being of my parents or my children, uh, what is needful? Because I can't do everything, but what is it that I need to do? And, and by the way, I mean, I work with a, a great group of colleagues here, all of them more skilled and smarter than I am. But there are some things, and we have an understanding, the president needs to do this. And if I say, well, I don't want to do it, one of you do it. No, no, Gordon, this is, the president needs to do this. That is, what does it behoove me that I need to do in light of this role? You write also fascinatingly about um, institutional intelligence when you are planning a vocation or working in any mm. environment, any institution. What do you, why is it important, do you think, to cultivate what you call institutional intelligence, to know your organization, know your calling and know your organization? There may be exceptions to what I'm about to say. So I'm going to make a statement and it's going to cross your mind. That was an overstatement. So I want you to know up front, I'm aware that this may be an overstatement, but I doubt it is, but it may be. And that is that every last one of us will fulfill our vocations within the context of institutions or organizations, every last one of us. Therefore, if you want to fulfill your vocation, on some level, you need to learn to navigate organizational life. So if you're called to be a professor, you need to learn how do universities work. If you're called to be a pastor, how do churches work? If you're called into government or civic life, how do municipalities work? How is New Zealand or Canada, how are they governed? How does this institution work? If I'm going to be, if that's my vocation, it's going to be fulfilled in that context. If you're going to be an artist, how do galleries work if I want to get my art shown? If I'm going to be a writer, how do publishing houses work? How do I work with these strange people that are known of as editors and publishers? who presumed to tell me that my that last paragraph was notably weak, and we recommend you eliminate it. Uh, who are these people? That is, I think, I think it applies across the board. And related to that is the capacity to work with other people, that all of us fulfill our vocations in interdependence upon the skills, capacities and in, uh, of others. So just down the hall from me is the chief financial officer. He's smart. He's brilliant, and he knows more about finances than I will know in, you know in a lifetime. I need to work with him. On some level, I need to defer to him, defer to his skills, his competency, if together we're going to accomplish something bigger than either of us could do alone. And that's that if you want to be in my vocation, you have to work with all kinds of people who all, you know, we jokingly say, uh, we just hired a new dean. And I say to him, down the hall from you is a group of people who are smarter than you are, and they know they are. That is, that's who you're going to have to work with. And working with others, then, it's just, it's just, it's just inherent in what it means to fulfill one's vocation. A question from a listener. Uh, when uh, they found out I was going to talk to you, talk to someone talking about vocation, what do you do in your life when all the doors appear closed? You've tried everything. You've sent out job applications. You've spoken to people. You've prayed, you've done everything you can, and every, do every door is shut. What do you do? Hugely important advice? question. Well, I, I'll go back to that company of friends to say to them, what am I not seeing? Uh, why do I keep banging on these doors that are closed? Because the odds are I am called to do something, and am I blind to what God is calling me to do because I keep banging on the same doors? So for me, the company of friends could be the 
where I ask that question. Secondly, I also I often think that sometimes we're asked to do things provisionally. For the pro, pro tem, for the short term, uh, what can I do in the meantime while I wait to see what God has for me? Um, and then thirdly, we wait. Uh, we do not underestimate the, the, the significance or the capacity for patience. Again, to go back to my line earlier, to let God do God's work in God's time. Uh, but we tend to live in an impatient society, and we feel, uh, we make jokes about, uh, I'm not unemployed, I'm between jobs. Well, there is some truth to that. But, you know, there's a certain pejorative or a stigma, better word, stigma, about being unemployed, unwaged. And uh, I think we need to get over that stigma because I think there will often be liminal times between times in which we're waiting, exploring, testing to see what might unfold. So, yes, I hear the listener saying, I've I've applied for all these jobs and every time I get turned down. Well, maybe you're, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to see what your closest friends would say if you were to ask, what am I missing? What am I not seeing here? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does this all mean? You know, I could even say, I'm just guessing, maybe you're supposed to start your own company. You keep applying to be the vice president. Maybe you're supposed to start your own company. Maybe you're supposed to open a bookstore. Maybe you're supposed to, uh, I don't know, uh, is there something you're not seeing that your friends might well see for you, at least to raise the possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, final question uh, to Ian, uh, my co-host, if he's still there. Ian, final thoughts, questions for Gordon? Well, I think um, this is such an important area, and, I, and people that I talk to, I think particularly post-COVID, there's a lot of people struggling with this uh, kind of yeah. the, the, the idea of vocation. And one of the big things that I try to help people see is try and catch, catch a glimpse of God's redemptive story, you know, kind of, and see how you know, they, they can be a part of that. Because kind of Amen. without that, it doesn't make sense, does it? No, well said. Agreed. Amen to that. All right, Gordon Smith, thank you very much. The, the author of this new IVP book, fascinating read. If you want to think about vocation, what you're going to do with your life and where you should be going, get hold of a copy. It's called Your Calling Here and Now, Making Sense of Vocation. And also with me today was my co-host, Ian Reid, Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. A pleasure. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.